Hello, and welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. One of the interesting things about Byzantium is that it emerges organically from societies that preceded it uh, without any apparent ruptures. And I'm thinking here in particular of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. There isn't any particular date at which we can say that a recognizably Byzantine society began. It's something that evolved from pre-existing societies and it incorporated and retained many of their fundamental features. Now, one of the most well-known and very disturbing aspects of ancient Roman and Greek society is slavery. And not just that those societies had slaves, but they had so many slaves that you wouldn't be able to walk around in any ancient Roman or Greek setting, whether the city or agricultural, without encountering slaves. So much so that those societies were classified by a great ancient historian named Moses Findlay, as slave societies, and in this discussion we will talk about what that means. Something comparable is true if one looks at the uh, Jewish and Christian matrices of Byzantine civilization. You find in the Old Testament uh, long and detailed regulations regarding slavery, and even the New Testament, while offering some perspectives in which slaves and masters are seen as equal in the eyes of God, and advocating compassion in other passages, nevertheless retains the entire infrastructure and uh, conceptual apparatus of slavery uh, as, as it was in antiquity and even endorses it, uh, telling slaves to be obedient to their masters. Now, what happens to all of this in Byzantium? Well, it's unclear. Uh, you try to follow the history of slavery and scholarship, and right around the time you get to the fourth century, or certainly later, when you get to the 7th century, it all becomes very murky and unclear, and it's very difficult to follow the thread. And instead of talking about slaves in Roman society, a lot of the bibliography is talking about Romans who are captured by uh, barbarians and raids and taken beyond the boundaries of the empire and enslaved there. So we're talking about Byzantines as slaves or captives in foreign lands, or foreign prisoners of war, which is somewhat different. And it's difficult to find sort of clear statements or collections of evidence about the the role, the, the presence, the numerical presence even, um, the treatment of slaves in Byzantine society. It certainly wasn't a society that defined itself through a polarity of slave versus citizen as happened in ancient Athens, for example. Slaves certainly existed. We have some records as to manumission, but we just know very little about their lives, and there's clearly a lot of work that needs to be done here. My guest today is Noel Lenski, a historian at uh, Yale University, and he has been writing some very interesting studies about how slavery changed in late antiquity, and on into Byzantium. Um, And I'm very happy that we managed to have this conversation because I had read most of these studies, but dispersed over the course of many years, I had not put them together to see that he's actually making the case for a pretty fundamental change in the presence and workings of the institutions in early Byzantium. And this is a thesis that he's carrying on into middle Byzantium and work that he's about to do. 
And so it was great to sit down with him and, and have it all out. Now, I have put some references to some of the work that Noel has written in the description of the podcast episode, but there's a lot more, and I didn't want to pack that with dense bibliographical references, so I also put a link there to his academia page where you can find most or all of these studies. In this discussion, we talk about the concept of a slave society uh, that was proposed by Findlay, as I mentioned, and the degree to which it remains useful or not. And we also talk about some of the ways in which slavery changed in late antiquity, looking at some professions, uh, or occupations rather, like uh, uh, primary school instructors and public slaves and a little bit the agricultural workforce. Uh, That's obviously a much bigger topic. And we also talk about how the institution may have changed in Middle Byzantium and also the experiences of uh, Byzantines who were taken captive, uh, whether by the Huns or the Arabs um, and so forth. So here's my conversation with Noel. Noel Lenski, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I'm really happy that we did this, because, and I'll tell you why. I had read all of your separate articles on slavery uh, in late antiquity in Byzantium, but over the course of so many years that I had not put them together and realized that you're actually making or building toward a sort of coherent overall reinterpretation of what was happening, especially in the early Byzantine period with slavery. So I was very glad to read all of that together and put it together in my mind and so that we can talk about it now. Uh, But the one article that I had not read, which I'd like to start with now, is the question of a slave society. And this is a concept that sort of hovered over you know, my graduate years when I was a graduate student. It was like, well, there are slave societies and there are these other things. <laughs> there are societies that have slaves. And I, I realize now that this was long overdue for reevaluation. And, and you've done that um, in, in the volume that you edited on that topic. So can you start out by telling us what Moses Finley, who introduced this concept of the slave society, what was he trying to do when he invented that category? And what are the problems with it? And how are we moving beyond them? It's a great question. Uh, I'll start by saying that I'm glad that you noticed that there is some method to my madness in the work I've been doing on slavery. That is to say that it's a project I've been working on for too long, and I've actually never written a monograph about it. But I've written enough articles that you could probably um, stick them all together in a volume and call that a book about uh, late antique slavery. And um, so I I have had ideas, um, big ideas about where this research on slavery is going and just never gotten around to writing a monograph about it. But one of the some of the things that I've needed to do are uh, I would call maybe brush clearing exercises. And I um, worked on the question of the slave society in order to uh, undertake a new approach to slavery that would fit better with the way I conceive of ancient and Um, early medieval or Byzantine slavery. The idea of the slave society, and there we can put that in inverted commas and maybe capitalize the slave society um, as a kind of archetypal thing, really did originate with uh, this historian Moses Finley, who's one of the greatest historians of Greek and Roman antiquity in the mid 20th century. 
Um, Finley was working in a kind of post-Marxist tradition. So he started off his career very interested in Marx and Marx's very schematic notions of the way that uh, economic history and societal history fits together. And Finley, I think, retained that interest in big schemes and really quite simple schemes. Uh, but he applied more the work of Max Weber to his own investigations and sort of um, moved away from uh, Marxist categories. But in the tradition of Weber, he was always very interested in having so-called ideal types or uh, um, almost like platonic forms of social construction um, that you could use to describe the very biggest trends in society. In these ideal types, there would be no one society that fit the ideal type precisely, but he felt that Greek and Roman society fit his ideal type for a quote-unquote slave society best of all. Um, and then he also felt that there were only a few such societies ever in human history and that those included Greece and Rome, um, but they also included uh, the modern Atlantic world um, uh, colonial states, you could say, of the U.S. South, the Caribbean, which of course is not a state, um, and Brazil. Um, so it was a very Western kind of phenomenon. And then all other slaveholding people, societies, um, historical junctures, he classed as societies with slaves. And you're right that they get a kind of consolation prize. And yes, you have slaves, but you don't really know how to do this. Right. Yeah. So what were the criteria that defined slave societies and separated them out from societies with slaves? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Finley um, believed that the criteria needed to be kept fairly simple. And in fact, um, in his own scholarship, um, the very first time he talks in detail about the slave society as a, an ideal type um, is in an encyclopedia article that he published in 1968 um, in the World Encyclopedia of Sociology. There had been a, a preceding um, uh, edition of that same encyclopedic work, and it had had a very broad ranging number of societies of old slaves and fine grained typologies. But Finley um, did away with that in favor of this very simple schema um, that he devised. Um, and he felt that uh, in order to qualify for this designation, a society would essentially just need three things. They would need uh, a certain number of slaves, um, they would, which uh, he classed at uh, above 20% um, as, uh, of the population. They would also need an economy where slaves provided the major um, economic base for the elite, though not necessarily for the entire society, but the elite made most of its money off of slaves and their labor. And also, and this is kind of a soft criterion that um, you can find in his work, but he doesn't state it explicitly, that uh, slavery somehow permeate the entire society. Yeah, that it's kind of important for the way in which uh, social distinctions are formulated, even when they don't concern slaves directly. Exactly. Yeah, and so forth. You know, it's I was just thinking now that you were saying that. So when I was growing up uh, in, in, in Greece, there were even debates like about the Parthenon and other iconic classical monuments as to whether these were the products of quote, a slave society. And I remember that there were, and these critiques came usually from a Marxist standpoint. And I don't know to what degree they were informed by Finley's work, but I think they probably were. So the idea was like, oh, you know, you venerate the Parthenon, but this is just a product of a slave, it's built by slaves and so forth. 
And the response to that was like, no, it's skilled craftsmen who were well paid. And we actually, some of them we know about. Um, but yeah, I remember that debate taking place. So the, the whole concept of a slave society sort of worked outside of ancient studies into even countries that have a, you know, some sort of vested interest in antiquity and its artifacts. But anyway, so in this um, critique, you, among other things, point out that there are many societies in history that fulfill the criteria that you just mentioned. It's not just those canonical five. And you also propose a different definition of slavery. There's a different way of looking at slavery as a phenomenon historically that it's sort of more inclusive. It's not a doesn't um, propose a binary either, or you either are a slave society or you're not, but that tries to establish a spectrum of different practices regarding slavery so that we can situate different societies along those spectra. Um, and do, do you wanna tell us what that definition is and why you chose those criteria? Yeah, um, so um, while Finley was doing his work, he actually was in communication with another, uh, um, one of the great scholars of um, slavery studies, you could say, um, Orlando Patterson, um, who's a sociologist and who works even more broadly than Finley. So Finley was um, in, in theory a sociologist, but his work focused on classical antiquity, um, much though he knew uh, all kinds of things about world societies and world history. Um, but Orlando Patterson is really thinking on the very largest um, uh, scale as a sort of historical sociologist. Um, and uh, Patterson came up with a different definition for slavery that he felt um, worked across the spectrum of global slaveries um, and that eliminated the notion of property from slavery. So Finley actually, uh, his slave society definition is um, uh, calped on or dependent on his notion of what it is to be a slave. And for him, property is very important. The notion that a slave is a person who's treated as a piece of property. The um, Patterson definition for focuses more on uh, three other criteria. So he talks about it as the permanent violence domination of natally alienated um, and uh, socially uh, uh, permanently dishonored individuals. Um, and so it's much more to do um, with violent oppression of people, dishonoring of people um, in extreme forms. And my feeling is that those two aspects of slavery don't need to be separated out, and that you don't need to say that slavery is either one or the other, but that in fact, uh, both the property definition um, and this violence and this honor definition need to be combined. So it's not a particularly profound thing to say, I don't think, except that um, the, as with the slave societies, societies with slaves binary, um, people that worked themselves into camps and said, we can't reconcile these two definitions when I think that we can. Yeah, as I was reading um, your discussion, I was trying to think of something that's outside the entire framework. So I was trying to come up with a model that would just be problematic just for its own sake. And what I came up with are slave trading states. And I was thinking specifically of Venice, Genoa, and the Ottoman Empire in the 14th to 15th centuries. And I think about it in these ways. So let's imagine a situation where you don't have any, just hypothetically, let's imagine that you don't have any slave societies as defined by Finley. So no, no one in this environment 
owns that many slaves that it's such a large part of the population. But you do have some states, like the three that I mentioned, that are trafficking in slaves and selling them to others in smaller numbers each, but the volume is overall quite high and they're making a lot of profit off of doing this. And those kinds of activities seem to slip into the cracks of the definitions, right? Because it's not necessarily about owning and it's not about how you set up your own society, but it's you know what kind of trade networks you're, you've set up. And this was very, very prevalent in those centuries. So late Byzantium is very much defined by mass enslavement and, and traffic of slaves through even through Constantinople, which was a clearinghouse. You, you write about this in your other article on slavery in Byzantium. So how do we handle those kinds of cases? It's a great question. And to my mind, the slavery is equally important for those societies as for societies in the Old South or for societies in Greece and Rome. Um, there are different ways of using slaves in order to make profit. And those societies that construct economies around the trade in slaves, I think, um, can very much be called slave societies. I'd take away the inverted commas and the capital letters, um, but just say that slavery really did matter to those societies. And the, the interesting thing about that is that your examples are really well chosen. So um, um, Venice and Genoa in particular, we just have so many records of slave sale transactions and those have been um, coming increasingly to the fore in recent work. And here I point particularly to um, the new book by Hannah Barker that does an excellent job of working through a lot of those um, contracts and showing this massive slave trade between East and West. Um, the interesting thing, though, that I was going to say is that those societies are also not unique in global history and that um, one could think, for example, I've worked a lot on slavery and slave trading among what the, the Greeks would have called Saracens, what the uh, Byzantines would have called Saracens. Um, so people who were um, especially um, nomadic uh, speakers of some version of Arabic um, in what is today um, the Syro-Arabian desert. And these people also very much functioned on that level. Um, slaves were not the only thing that they traded in, not the only part of the, their economy, but they seem to have been an extremely important part of the economy of these Saracen peoples. And then you can jump across the Atlantic, particularly in the period of uh, the sort of high point of Atlantic slavery, or really the, the, the beginning of the climb to uh, the construction of these massive slave economies in the Atlantic world. You think about something like the Westos, who were a Native American tribe um, in the Southeast and who uh, really, they weren't a tribe until um, the uh, Anglo and Spanish settlers came um, and started constructing these large-ish uh, plantations that required lots of slaves. And at the beginning, there were uh, lots of Native Americans who were enslaved uh, for these plantations, in addition to the um, Africans, who then became the major source of slavery in the centuries to follow. And the Westos kind of came into being as a slave trading tribe, in no small part because so many of the tribes that had been encountered um, by the European colonists uh, had been devastated both by uh, infectious disease, but also by mm -hmm. the practice yeah. of slave taking on the part of these settlers. So um, they, they, in some sense, forced uh, an agglomeration of peoples together who then uh, practiced the economy of slave trading. Yeah, yeah, so trafficking in slaves or slave cartels or whatever you wanna call them are just as important for maintaining the phenomenon as, as owning them and, and so forth. 
Uh, so I've got one more question about slave society, then we'll move on to what was going on in the late antique, early Byzantine period. And it seems to me that the concept of a slave society is yet another one of those uh, frameworks that ancient historians or classicists devised, and it kind of spread to other fields from there. And, you know, obviously classical studies have had an advantage in European thought and being you know, very prestige early field of study and certainly in philology and, and all kinds of, and history and all kinds of other areas. It's no surprise that a concept that came, you know, was invented there then was disseminated to other fields. Is, is that actually what happened? So is the concept of a slave society something that world historiography owes to classics and alongside what other kinds of concepts would we put it? Uh, I think that in a way you're right that the concept of the slave society it grew out of an educational culture uh, that was Eurocentric um, and also that was very focused on classical training for the elite. And so when people um, came to questions that were in origin and maybe fundamentally Marxist about the structuring of societies and labor, um, they looked to the ancient world for their paradigms about how this all got started. Um, and eventually, I think that morphed itself into the construction of you know, the slave society paradigm that Finley obviously was classically trained, not necessarily in a uh, traditional sense, though. Finley actually studied as a lawyer as a young man, but he was kind of a prodigy, a, a wunderkind, um, and came through various forms of training by the time um, he was in his 20s and eventually kind of uh, eventuated in the phenomenal ancient historian that he was. But um, his, his chosen career, which was ancient history and not lawyering, um, led him in the direction that had already been charted by earlier scholarship to say, well, if we want to understand the way that labor relations and social relations are structured in history, we need to begin with classical antiquity. Yeah, yeah. I, this struck me also uh, a few months ago. I had a a recording of a podcast episode with some colleagues who work on China. And I was so struck by how many classical Greek and Roman concepts they were using from dynasty to ethnicity to, <laughs> to talk about China. It's almost like a tyranny of the classics still in fields that they were just never designed to, to work on. Anyway, all right. So let's look at the transformation of the slave society model in late antiquity and what happens to slaves there. And so you've advanced some arguments, some specific arguments um, about teachers, like primary teachers, uh, you know, pedagogues, um, th that there was a shift there from using slave teachers for children to hired free teachers in this period. And that the same happened gradually um, with public slaves. So these slaves owned by the cities to perform various managerial, administrative, financial tasks or whatever. And in antiquity, a lot of them tended to be slaves, but in late antiquity, these functions shifted to specialists who were free. And I understand that you're, you're developing or you, you have a a similar argument about the agricultural labor force, which would be the largest number of people, and that there was a kind of shift from slave labor insofar as it existed in the third century AD to the bound farmers, the uh, coloni in uh, who are sort of famous or infamous in late antique scholarships. It's a very controversial concept as to what exactly these free farmers who are bound to the land actually were. Is this a legal thing, a social thing, how do we understand it? And I 
I, if I understand correctly, you're arguing that this kind of labor also tended to um, squeeze out slave labor forces in late antiquity. So I see those three arguments as all working in kind of parallel to suggest a model of transformation in late antiquity from the, in, in, in specific sectors of the labor force from slave to free, but kind of dependent. Um, so first of all, did I get this right? And secondly, what are the causes or some of them that led to this transformation, if I did get it right? Uh, the, that's a very big question. That, that If I could answer that um, in a few sentences um, and then uh, you know, print that as my monograph, I think I'd be done. <laughs> but, um, but I'll try to boil it down a bit here. So you're absolutely right that um, I've started doing some sort of soundings of different um, economic sectors, you could say, um, and trying to determine whether there's a shift or not in um, uh, the structuring of labor and the continuation or not of um, massive slaveholding the way happens, say, in the first century BC in Rome. Um, and I tended to find that that's not the case in late antiquity. Um, and here I am, I am kind of going against some recent scholarship that says that, no, in fact, deep into um, antiquity, uh, there has been a maintenance of the, the classical slave society, you could say. Um, and instead, what I'm finding if I go deep on any question, like, for example, the teachers, is that, no, that's just not the case. And that, frankly, that's a, a um, back to the future kind of argument. I think it had long been contended um, that by late antiquity, uh, the intensification of slaveholding had petered out. And it wasn't what it was in, say, the time of Caesar and Augustus. Um, but just to take specifically this example of teachers. So if you think about in the first century BCE, um, we have an interesting text from Suetonius that tells us about people who served as kind of advanced teachers, grammatici, um, not, not some rough equivalent of, say, high school teachers. Um, and these grammatici in the first century BCE and the first century CE, they um, were almost exclusively slaves or freedmen in the work of Suetonius, who catalogs a bunch of them. And then there's a very similar work uh, in the fourth century written by Ausonius of Bordeaux, who was himself a grammaticus and was a free person and eventually became a consul and so forth. And already you're beginning to sense, okay, this guy who's holding a profession that was once a slave profession is a consul um, in the 370s. So that, that something has changed here. And in fact, um, Ausonius's examples are exclusively free people. And some of them are of relatively high status. A number, number of them hold imperial offices and so forth. So you say, well, at least in that profession, things have changed. And I agree that uh, you, you've read my work carefully, let's say. Um, and that I would find the same kinds of patterns playing themselves out with the uh, Servi Publici. So in classical Greece and Rome, a lot of the work of administering a city um, was done by slaves that were owned by that city. And some of that was grunt work, you know, keeping the streets clean or the baths running smoothly or something. Um, but a lot of it was highly skilled professional work. Um, so maintaining the books or serving as scribes. Um, or uh, managing accounts and this sort of thing. Uh, those are obviously the kinds of things that could become desirable as professions for free people. And in fact, they did. So that by the time you get to the fourth century, uh, we have a serious drop off in the number of Servi Publici without them totally disappearing. And that's what's really interesting about slavery is that it doesn't go away. It's not like there's an on off switch and uh, the off switch is, you know, the switch is turned to off 
and there are no more slaves. There are slaves, but they just aren't performing as many roles and seem not to be as important to society. So the final bit of your question was on these colony or these agricultural laborers. We think again about say the first century BC as a period when agricultural work is done at least on large estates by slaves. And that's something that again can be reaffirmed in the um, agricultural manual that was written by Varro, uh, Marcus Terentius Varro, who's writing in the time of uh, Augustus, you could say, um, Caesar and Augustus. And uh, Varro definitely makes it clear that if you're going to manage an estate, you need a lot of slaves to do that. Whereas if you fast forward to uh, this, an equivalent manual in late antiquity that, that was written by uh, Palladius, um, uh, probably in the fifth century, um, there is uh, almost no mention of slaves. And instead, it very much seems to be that the agricultural laborers that are used to manage an elite estate are um, dependent, but not necessarily enslaved. There's also a bunch of legal material that points to the fact that uh, tenants on agricultural estates became bound to those estates. They became what some legal sources call slaves of the soil. These were people who could not be sold on the open market as slaves, but if you sold your estate, part of the estate you were selling included a list of those individuals. So they were kind of being sold. And here we get over to a conversation we had earlier about our slaves property. Well, is a person who sold together with an estate a piece of property or not? And that's where a little bit more expansive definition of slavery, I think, helps. So these uh, these colony, as we refer to them kind of in a shorthand with a word that's often used uh, in the period and in the legal sources, these colony were people who were maybe semi-servile, you could say. They weren't in as abject a form as maybe a slave of the first century BCE, but nevertheless, they didn't have a great life. And in fact, even relative to uh, slaves um, as such, they had certain disadvantages. So there is a law of the Emperor Valentinian III um, that talks about the fact that, well, if you're a slave, you can be manumitted, you can be freed. But if you are a colonist, if you are bound to the soil, alas, you cannot be freed. And I'm really sorry about that. I recognize that's a disadvantage that you have, even though I'm telling you you're a perfectly free individual. Um, and so it's a, it's a great irony, but um, it tends to be the case. Yeah, it reminds me of the sort of famous paradox that, again, something you learned in grad school, I don't remember where we read this, was that in this period, the interesting phenomenon is not that people own the land, but that the land owns the people. That's great. That's a great way of thinking about it, because it just is true. Yeah, I mean, it makes uh, certain managerial and administrative functions a lot easier, but... Yeah, I mean, it certainly does. It, it, um, it solves for a lot of problems that slavery presented. So if you actually own your laborers as property, humans are very volatile creatures, right? So your slave, first of all, has a will of her own, and she can decide to run away. Um, and that makes it very difficult. Or worst case, she can decide to commit suicide. And we have plenty of instances of slaves committing suicide because of the oppression that they face. But this is a horrible things that you think about slavery. But then um, there's also the, the fact that a, a slave is a mortal being just like all of us and can die on you. So you can buy a slave um, and one year later, the slave can grow ill and die. If your laborer is free and you don't have, have no capital invested in that laborer, but nevertheless is bound to farm your land and to turn over the proceeds um, gratis to you, then you have the best of both worlds. 
Yeah, as I was going through your articles, I was picking out these reasons um, that you were giving for how this transformation happened in each of these um, areas. And so, for example, when it came to teaching and um, enhanced prestige of educational profession or occupations, just of learning in general in late antiquity, um, also that it's easier to hire labor for a specific task than to have to own and maintain a whole person and with all of the problems that you mentioned. Also the ability of the state to bind people to occupations, sometimes hereditary, sometimes to the land as we talked about. So this made it easier to um, compel free labor and also you know, uh, frees you from the responsibilities of maintaining slaves on a full-time all-around basis. And so, so I've, I found all of those quite interesting. It's almost at some points I find myself thinking like, <laughs> it's almost like it's a kind of gig economy. In other words, instead of owning a person, you just, you know, you just contract out the specific job that you want and pay them only for that instead of having to have the whole, anyway. Yeah, the, the one big difference there being though that um, the gig economy for all of its problems, and there are many of them, does not bind people to their gig professions. And in fact, that's one of the fundamental right. um, things about the gig economy and the current capitalist economy um, is that the laborer, I mean, not, not thanks to the economic system, uh, but thanks to what remains of our social safety net and to our notion of individual rights, um, is able to quit the job at any point that they want to. Um, and so you can take a job driving Uber and uh, two weeks later decide you hate it and quit. Whereas if you are a colonist, as I explained, um, not only you, but also your offspring are bound to live on the farm where you were born. Um, your, uh, in the Latin is origo, your origin dictates so much about your very existence. And that that's economically actually not particularly wise. So I think that at least um, if we were talking to um, uh, classical economists or even neoliberal economists, they would tell us um, that that's the worst thing that you could do is to gum up the labor market in that way, um, that you're binding yourselves um, into a certain kind of economic relations um, that allow you for no flexibility and therefore cut your competitive advantage in the marketplace. So, so it wasn't a wise choice on the part of people, but in a pre-modern economy where they don't have uh, the same uh, understandings of capital, but also where they don't have the same ability to keep track of individuals that we do, um, where the, the uh, employer cannot keep track of individuals in the same way that we do. Um, it, it seems to make sense to them to do things in this way. Yeah, I was struck by some of the laws of Justinian on the colony, which suggests that the colony were actually reading all of the laws that he issued about their status and their rights and their responsibilities and taking advantage of every loophole that they could find. And he had to then issue supplementary legislation to close loopholes. I just find that fascinating that these bound farmers in you know, upper Egypt would be watching for the next law and, and reading it carefully. Anyway, I'd so I mean, one thing to think about is that there are advocates um, on their behalf, not always, but um, that the um, uh, peculiar institution that is the Christian church um, introduces all these um, political and social actors who are not directly connected to the state in, in the form of bishops. Um, and these people sometimes will take the side of the oppressed. And that good examples of that come from um, Augustine of Hippo in the fourth and fifth century, 
where he actually will get involved in these debates and um, at least try. He's he's not at all interested in overturning the slave society and slave holding or um, in saying that um, um, bound colony need not be bound or something. He's very much interested in upholding the laws of the land, but he is interested in that. And over and over again, he references them. So he's out there mediating these disputes for folks who you're right, probably couldn't read, had no idea right. what the law said, but they'd come to him with their complaints and he would recognize, well, there's a law that would protect you if only it were enforced. Right, right. Well, this brings us to the next topic. Uh, let's, just, let's just dive right into it. So you've argued that it is possible to trace some Christian influence on the laws that Christian emperors were issuing regarding slavery or that concerned the, the situation experience of slaves. Now, this has been an area of debate. So there have been scholars who argue that, like if you look at Constantine's laws, that that his laws regarding things like marriage and divorce and things like that, and you know, the, which have implications for the social status of of persons in the Roman Empire, that they're not motivated by any kind of overt Christian um, you know agenda, but rather they're just continuing very traditional Roman discourse on you know status and marriage and and so forth. Um, so it is possible to debate this either way, but you you've found some instances where you do see a Christian influence. Can, can you mention a couple of those? Sure. I think um, before I do that, I'll uh, preface my remarks by saying that one issue with um, using Christianity as a kind of lens um, uh, to think about shifts in the laws on slavery, about normative regulation of slavery, um, is that Christianity does not have a consistent message about slavery. Um, Christianity is all, I mean, rather, uh, uh, slavery is all over the New Testament, and it's all over the Old Testament, for that matter. And in so far as it appears in the New Testament, there are kind of two competing strains, and one is that slavery um, is paradigmatic for the man-God relationship, that our relationship with God is really predicated on a kind of um, servant-master idea, and that certainly shows up in Paul, but in lots of the parables uh, reported in the Gospels, um, and so that's one piece of it, and that filters down into things like the multiple places in the Pauline epistles where Paul tells slaves they must be obedient to their masters and in one place that they will they should suffer many lashes if they're not. Um, but on the opposite side of that, we have messages of sort of egalitarianism and also of liberation um, so that uh, Jesus claims to have set captive, come to set captives free um, and also that Paul tells us um, in Galatians 3.28 um, that there will be um, neither uh, free nor slave in the kingdom of God. That God doesn't care about these distinctions. So you you move forward to late antiquity, away from kind of the gospel period, the early Christian period, um, and you and you encounter the laws, and you ask yourself, well, um, does this reflect Christian influence, or is this just simply a natural um, uh, development of trends? in uh, Roman jurisprudence. And you're right to say that there are people who say, well, I don't see anything there that doesn't have its roots in Roman law. I would differ from that insofar as, of course, all these things have their roots in Roman law because it is Roman law, but that Roman laws can reflect some different ideology uh, and maybe some uh, different perspective on these questions. So just to give you a few examples of changes, Constantine introduces a law that says that you can no longer tattoo your slave on the forehead. 
That was something that happened fairly commonly, especially if you had a runaway slave. In order to prevent the slave from uh, being able easily to escape from your control, you'd simply tattoo on their forehead that they were a slave and belonged to so-and-so, which is obviously a horrible and uh, mutilating gesture. Hansen says that's no longer possible legally because the face is made in the image and likeness of God. So I would challenge interlocutors to tell me that that's not a Christian right, principle right. that's governing um, slaveholding there. Um, but there are lots of areas where you can say that's true. Uh, so Christianity becomes very concerned about sexual morality, um, imposes a different um, scheme of sexual morality, let's say, than classical antiquity did, um, up to and including being very concerned about prostitution, which it doesn't like. Um, and there are all sorts of regulations that come into the laws on prostitution, um, for, forbidding it um, as much as possible. Um, and here you can stretch out from uh, sort of late antique um, um, the Greco-Roman environments and uh, early Byzantium and over to other parts of the Mediterranean. So for example, the Visigoths strictly forbade uh, prostitution um, of slaves because they, uh, again, out of Christian principles and that's stated explicitly. And some things are simple, like, um, we think about Sunday, you know, Sunday people get the day off of work. And certainly that's true in European societies um, largely today, a lot less so in American society where the marketplace dominates everything. Nonetheless, the whole reason that there's a Sunday holiday is obviously rooted in the idea of a Sabbath as interpreted by uh, Christianity. Um, and again, um, Constantine initiates the process of forbidding work on Sunday um, the first just uh, judicial um, uh, processes uh, happening, so state work on Sunday, but um, eventually this morphs out into fairly um, fairly robust regulations on Sunday work. I would say that the one, including for slaves, um, that the one area where that's not true is when the harvest comes in, then you, you get to work seven days a week because there's too much work to be done. But in other periods of year, and in fact, we have a hagiographical topos that plays out both in uh, the East and the West in the Middle Ages, where um, you get slaves who are working on Sunday on their own property, though, and who are stricken with illness or something for violating the Sabbath. Right, right. And, which is very interesting. And it shows you the, the paradox or the conundrum that slaves would have been placed in because um, all of a sudden Christianity says, oh, you get one day off a week. Well, that's pretty good. Um, but of course, on that one day off, and we know this from the Atlantic slave world, um, that slaves were trying to make a living and they were trying to get on, on better than their masters would have provided for them. So they might have a garden plot. They might have some alternative way of making income and improving their lot um, that they could work on on Sunday, the day that their masters would give them off. And then when they did so, of course, God would strike them. Um, right. And we're back to the paradox. Yeah. I have the impression that in the 20th century, the debate over Christianity and slavery, especially in late antiquity, was still operating within the overriding framework of abolition. That is that scholars were looking for traces of an abolitionist movement and could it be linked to Christianity? Could it not? Was there, wasn't there, that sort of thing. And I think we've gone a long way toward recognizing that Christian concerns in this period are not the ones that we would like, like in the aftermath of the American Civil War, but they have to, they're configured morally very differently. And so you mentioned, for example, prostitution. And just for the benefit of the reader, the, the audience, we should say that a large part of prostitution was serviced by slaves who had no choice in the matter. And that cracking down on prostitution is effectively 
right, removed slaves from those situations. Yeah, when, it, when it worked, of course, prostitution went on. Oh, and, yeah, and it does yes. now, but you're absolutely right. And I should yeah. have made that clear that the laws are really um, not so much about forbidding prostitution. They're about forbidding masters from prostituting their slaves. Yeah. 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 So, so that's the explicit prohibition that you can't force another individual into prostitution. I mean, the, the Visigothic law is actually forbidding all prostitution, but um, the... Um, uh, you'll know better than I, um, honestly, Anthony, whether uh, the Byzantines ever strictly forbid prostitution, but it's uh, not the case to my knowledge. No, yeah. no, not in practice or theory. Um, but, you know, there are periodically attempts to round up, you know, prostitutes and put them in convents and these sorts of things, but not, not, not that common. Sure. Um, but so often the moral concern there is it's, it's a spiritual concern, right? I mean, insofar as it's expressed on the Christian side, it's a spiritual concern for all the parties involved in those kinds of activities that this is sexual impurity and that we need to remove the setting and the opportunities for that sort of thing, whether it's done actively or whether you're the passive victim of it. Um, it's not a let's help the slaves so much. It's a concern for reducing the the areas of sexual, you know, immorality in the society uh, for everybody. It's, it's true. There is an element, though, um, and I find this in the in sermons and in theological literature, where um, people are actually concerned about the spiritual well-being of the slave. Um, and so uh -huh. that um, there there is, I, I agree with you, that society itself needs to reflect Christian morality, and that that's maybe even the fundamental driver of this kind of legislation. But that there's also an a, um, interest in the theological literature or in conveying the notion that slaves are equal before God and that slaves have a soul just like yours and that you need to work to preserve their soul um, for salvation uh, yeah, using yeah. the legal apparatus. So that is an interesting um, piece of, um, of the story. And um, we could yeah. also talk more about abolition that you've mentioned. and. Um, those what, ideas. So what would you like to add about abolition? So, so um, just that um, you're absolutely right to say that uh, abolition discourse, that it can be in the modern world, can be connected up with Christianity. They're, again, not coterminous. So you can't say that, oh, abolition is a strictly Christian movement, um, but it is uh, contoured and colored by Christian discourse in many instances, in some not, though. Um, we have to remember that the, the modern abolition movement also uh, post-dates the rise of the notion of um, natural rights, of you know, all, all people born being right. born um, free and um, equal and so forth, just as humans, not as creatures of God. Um, and that uh, it also um, post-dates the rise of political movements, you could say. So uh, mass political movements, right. I think, um, are, are more of a modern phenomenon than they are a ancient or medieval phenomenon. Um, that people would structure themselves around attempts to get certain political actions done um, and then know how to do that and have tools available like the printing press. Um, uh, th those were things that did not exist in classical um, or in uh, Byzantine times. But um, that doesn't mean that there isn't a discourse of abolition that's connected up with Christianity um, and that dates all the way back to late antiquity with people like Gregory of Nyssa um, who writes a famous homily that says no one should uh, claim the right to hold another human being in slavery. And you can't 
put a money value on an individual. Um, and that um, sort of thing uh, is a discourse that um, maybe has a, a minor effect in late antiquity. What I like to think of a notion of kind of a proto-abolition movement um, in the fourth and into the fifth century. When we start to see one phenomenon that occurs with some regularity is just the mass manumission of your own slaves. So people who were interested in the spiritual life would all of a sudden just say, I'm freeing you all. Um, you're all going to go free. Um, and in some instances also, and you know, those who want, come follow me and I'll use what remains of my wealth in order to establish a, a convent you mentioned. Um, so um, yeah. we think of a figure like Melania um, who did this um, in you know, a, a bluest of blue blood Roman aristocrat um, who does this and you know, eventually winds up um, in the Holy Land, but uh, uh, Manny met her slaves on mass. Um, also you know, pays a visit to St. Augustine who I've mentioned earlier. Um, so a very interesting character, but she's not unique. There are actually multiple examples of people who manumit all of their slaves at once um, in order to pursue a truer um, uh, path to Christianity, you could say. Yeah, and there's similar arguments that are made in the 12th century by Eustathius of Thessaloniki. When he frees his slaves, he makes some very similar arguments from sort of political philosophy and uh, um, you know the, the equality and so forth. And he's a fascinating figure. And, you know, there's so much of his work that, that I think, um, you know, Bauke and I, in an earlier episode, we, we couldn't think of anybody who had quite possibly read all of Eustathius of Thessaloniki. Um, but he has some fascinating treatises on the origin of political communities and that they've never been studied. And they're, yeah, yeah. It's, I think that his, his interest in slavery from that regard is tied to a political thought that we, we haven't yet uncovered, but. Anyway, we will. So you mentioned um, in Middle and Later Byzantium. So let's turn to them, uh, to those periods. Um, so how did the vocabulary of slavery change in Middle Byzantium um, and, you know, making it harder for us to actually identify slaves? Or what changes did you um, find when you turned to look at those later periods? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the um, Byzantine vocabulary of slavery is obviously built on a classical vocabulary, but the valences of a lot of the slave words shift. And the most obvious example of that is, of course, um, doulos, or, uh, doulos, which uh, had in classical Greece meant very strictly a person who was enslaved, a person who was property um, of the master. Where in uh, modern Greek, uh, you know better than I, dulia um, just means work or labor. Um, so how do we get from a notion of a uh, slave word turning into a generic word for free labor? Um, and I think that happens, honestly, in this early Byzantine period when you begin to see um, a kind of, first of all, a kind of reverence for the word doulos because it's the default word used by Paul to describe his relationship with God. Um, and as you work to elevate Paul, um, you want to distance yourself from calling him the slave of God and think of him perhaps more as a servant of God. Um, and servant can eventually transform itself maybe into something uh, more like labor um, in, in a modern context. The, um, the word doulos, it continues to mean slave um, and not just servant, um, but is less and less used. Words that are more commonly used um, in late antiquity for slaves um, are things like um, oiketes, which initially say in the classical period meant something like a household slave, um, obviously from the root oikos um, for house or household. 
that word um, by late antiquity means very much a generic um, word for slavery. So there's a, a good book on late antique slavery by Kyle Harper that has an appendix and he demonstrates beyond the shadow of a doubt that the word oikethes in this period has to mean generic slave. Um, and uh, that um, then eventually also is a word that comes to be used for these bound tenants because you are kind of a householder as it mm -hmm. were of an estate. Um, and so there again, we see a gradual shift in the meaning of the word. The another Byzantine word that's very interesting um, is um, sicarion, um, a little soul, um, which kind of gets at a notion that I talked about earlier that um, for all that a slave is your property, a slave is also a little soul that you're responsible for somehow, um, and and on in the sense of a, a life as well. Um, so that's an interesting word um, uh, that we could think about the ramifications of. Then the only other word I want to talk about for slaves is, of course, the slave word, um, which originally meant Slav. And that's a word that we encounter in the sources in the 11th century. There are arguments that it may have been used in sort of vernacular contexts and trading contexts and so forth as early as the 9th century. Um, and so Slavs are very much on the radar screen then. And because Slavs are a common source of slaves for the Mediterranean world, um, that word, uh, which is a ethnonym, then comes to be applied to all slaves. And across Mediterranean cultures, so Latinate cultures um, that use the word sklavus, um, and then um, the Byzantine culture that uses the Greek word um, sklavus, and then uh, Arabic culture that uses sakaliba, which is Liba. an Arabic version of the same. So that really does become a default slave word in the context of a world where Slavs are a regular source of slaves. Yeah, it's interesting how many of the sort of peoples of late antiquity or the people that enter the orbit of Roman sources in, in this period end up in our vocabularies with all of these strangely different connotations like Slav slave, right? Like vandal, mm -hmm. right? Uh, brigand, right? And I've even read that ogre, is from the Hungarian, Ungro, uh, in, in you know French or in Greek, Ugro. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. 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 It's it's from ethnography to sort of social history. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And psycharion is yeah. It's a very interesting term. A uh, little soul. Yeah. Another interesting aspect of slavery in Byzantium is that it historically kind of gets inverted. So when we're Talking about the ancient Roman Empire, we're talking about slaves in the empire who are often de foreign origin or, you know, barbarians who are captured and enslaved or the Romans, you know, in their wars, especially during the Republic, they bring all of these hundreds of thousands of slaves to Italy and so forth. When you get to late antiquity and even more so Byzantium, the relationship kind of gets inverted and discussions of slavery tend to veer off into Romans being enslaved by barbarians and being taken outside the empire. And, you know, what happened to them then? And you've written a series of articles um, on this phenomenon. I think they're definitive about, about this phenomenon in, in, in at three aspects. So you talk about the, the Saracen front that you mentioned earlier. So what was going on in the sort of southeastern corner of the empire? You've talked about the Germanic front, so what was going on along the like Rhine and and uh, Upper Danube area, and a separate one on Attila, spe <laughs> Attila specifically, who gets his own chapter uh, in this in this story. And you actually say at one point that Attila 
captured and enslaved and deported a significant part of the population of the Balkans during his raids, like hundreds of thousands of people, right? So this isn't just a retail event as because like you go and you pick a few off the shelf. This is industrial scale deportation, right? So what's the experience of all of these, these Roman provincials, free citizens who are enslaved by barbarians and taken, well, usually across a river, <laughs> Yeah, I think that um, the um, you're right to say that my characterization, at least, of um, some of these uh, captive-taking events um, is that they're very large scale. And uh, you're right that as Roman security structures break down and the empire becomes victim uh, instead of victimizer, you could say, of the people surrounding it, um, that its citizens are liable for capture. And that this is happening all along, really. Um, there's no period in which Romans can't be taken captive and it's built into their legal apparatus uh, that if you are taken captive, uh, provided you didn't just go over to the, to the enemy. So if you were a deserter in war, then you couldn't um, have any benefits. But if you were taken captive and then escaped, um, that you could return in essence to a uh, restoration of your legal personality, including all your legal um, rights and relationships. So if you were uh, married um, and uh, so forth, you could eventually return to those. There's, there's debate about precisely um, what rights you get back at what point. Um, nonetheless, um, as this happens in late antiquity with increasing frequency, um, and then into the Byzantine Empire, um, there's a much greater emphasis on trying to, on the state and on the church eventually to try to recuperate these people to try to ransom them um, or recover them from their captive circumstances. You asked what their experiences were, and we do have some attestations of this, and they're they're quite interesting. So, in some instances, we know that these people were oppressed and treated as slaves and so forth, um, but in others, they were actually assimilated into the societies. And this is a really interesting piece of pre-modern slavery that, um, in captives taking societies anthropologically. Um, the captive is often assimilated into the society. So we think about slavery as a permanent uh, mechanism for holding people outside of the society. But in captive-taking societies, they're often assimilated into the culture and sometimes even into a family, especially women, obviously, um, who become the mates, in essence, of their captors, um, uh, forcibly so. Um, but then you can uh, talk about ramifications of that outward and the fact that the Romans, um, they had a great assimilative slavery apparatus where lots of people were freed. And once they were free, they had full Roman citizenship. They often became active members of the society and were especially successful economically. And that's there's no one-to-one -one parallel, but you think about someone like um, uh, the empire of Attila, you think about uh, Attila and his empire, um, and uh, we have a famous attestation from a character who had been captured by Attila's armies, um, who was a Greek trader um, and had then fought in Attila's armies as a sort of captive slave. And we have plenty of instances of slave soldiers throughout history, and then was eventually freed and turned into a kind of quasi noble. Um, and he, in the uh, fragmentary Greek historian Priscus, he tells his story and uh, advocates for Hunnic society and says, oh, this is great. You know, it's a wonderful place to be. Um, even though these people captured me and forced me to fight on, in their armies, um, I've eventually assimilated to their ways and I prefer this to the Greek way.
Yeah, and he talks about how corrupt the Roman Empire is and <laughs> glad to be rid of all that. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so in addition to the flow of all of these, the population into barbarian-controlled territories, and you mentioned there are all these institutions, and the churches took a role in this, and the emperors also, in ransoming these populations, bringing them back. So that then translates into a flow of cash outside of the empire, right, to the barbarian lands. And you, you calculate those sums are very significant. Um, so there is a, there's, you know, widespread social investment. There were even like, uh, um, you know, the collect collections of funds to help free prisoners and so forth. And this continued into Byzantine times. You, you know, Noel, actually, so now that I'm writing a, a new Byzantine history and I've reached the, the middle period, I realize with striking clarity just how important this phenomenon was for the lives of you know, most people at the time. The insecurity of the fear of possible raiders taking you away and the, the sheer number of people who were affected by this. And it's really, it's staggering. Like this is a, this was a main part of life. And I don't think we talk about it enough. I completely agree with you. I think that um, it's something that we take for granted that no one's going to capture us and turn us into a slave. <laughs> Whereas I think in the antiquity and the middle ages, particularly in late antiquity and the middle ages throughout those periods, people were regularly afraid this might happen. And um, entire charitable societies um, are formed in order to buy back captives um, and churches establish large funds to do this and the state eases the apparatus whereby um, these funds can then be released and also controls it. So for example, the state and the church are very interested in um, forbidding anyone from melting down uh, precious metal uh, liturgical vessels in order to, or simply giving them um, to to a uh, captor um, as a ransom or to melt them down and use the bullion in order to buy back captives um, for, for the obvious reason that, you know, these are sacred vessels, they're consecrated. And if someone makes a donation of them to a church, they don't want, the, if they wanted to give money for ransoming, they would have done so. Um, but, uh, but this leads to hot water as well, because when churches get into binds, one source of liquid wealth are those, those vessels. But that's, that, that's getting us down to the ground level of these problems um, from an economic standpoint, but the experience of the captors uh, and of the captives rather, and of just individuals who lived in a world where you did have to worry that at any point someone might show up from uh, you know, uh, other um, uh, ethnic or national group and take you captive, um, and that would completely alter your life. And honestly, that's something that continues into the early modern world. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, the Mediterranean is full of captives in the 16th, 17th century. Yeah, and I found by the 10th century, there are actually sophisticated financial instruments that have developed around this. Um, so here's one that you might find fascinating. So um, be because these raids often took place by sea, so there were these like Saracen fleets in so by the 9th, 10th centuries, but you get that. And so a Saracen captain will take a town and tell the Roman authorities, like, look, I can kill all these people <laughs> or take them away, but it will be a hassle for me to take them away. So why don't you give me a paper saying that I spared them? And when we have our next exchange of prisoners on the frontier in Cilicia, right, that paper will be credit 
right? Toward captives that you've taken of ours. That's brilliant. Yeah, captive yep. credit. Uh, captive credit. credit. Credit default swap. Um, exactly, exactly. Uh -huh. And then, so he takes a bunch away. This is from Thessaloniki in early 10th century. And he goes to Crete. And Crete at the time was another, it was an, an Arab emirate. And the, the, the Arabs on Crete, they go down to the coast and they buy some of the captives because they know that they'll be able to get higher prices selling them back to the Roman authorities. In other words, this is an investment. Mm-hmm. Right, because they know that the fleet just wants to unload as many of these as possible because it's just got too many, can't feed them probably. So they'll sell them cheap. Yeah, it's there's a whole economy of these, things. anyway. Yeah, I mean, the and it's something that feeds on itself, so it's a kind of vicious cycle. Um, so that yeah. um, you could say that there are unintended consequences of the creation of these mechanisms and these funds and so forth to pay for the redemption of captives. Um, and that just leads to more captive taking because people don't necessarily see this as a vehicle for generating slave labor or slaves as marketable commodities. They see it as a vehicle for generating ransom payments or even credit on ransom payments. Exactly, because when they had those exchanges in Cilicia, there was this river and I guess the, the, the two columns marched across, right? And you wanted to have more than the other side because the other side then had to pay you the difference. And so, yeah, no, they, they really, so they sometimes conducted raids in order to fill out their like quota or numbers so that they have a bigger, on, on both sides, this was, this was, anyway, it's just- a this Reverse weird, logic, you have to say. It is, it is. <laughs> it, it, it incentivizes raiding simply in order to facilitate the mechanisms for undoing the effects of raiding. It's bizarre. Anyway, yes. um, you mentioned earlier the um, the experiences of captives, and I, I, it just struck me, actually, I'm, I'm actually reading something very similar to that. So this is a novel called Ride the Wind, and it's about early 19th century Texas, and it's the story of Cynthia Ann Parker, who was like a white colonist in Texas, and she was taken by the Comanche in a raid. And it it's really, really well done, um, this book. It's by uh, Lucia St. Clair Robson. And it tells the experience of a girl who was incorporated into Comanche society. And eventually she's married a chief and her son was the last leader of the free Comanche. Uh, but it talks about the experience of for go, how you move from captivity to assimilation to a leadership role in a society that's taken you captive in that way. I think it must've been very similar. Um, in, in many periods of history. Yeah, and there, there we're getting back up these uh, cross-cultural comparisons, and I agree that that's a very apt one. Um, and there, um, there is uh, another interesting novel along the same lines called The Sun, that's a series of generations in Texas, and the first generation is someone who's a Comanche captive. There's a great book on Comanche, uh, on the Comanche Empire, it's called by uh, Pekka Himalayan, mm. uh, a um, Finnish scholar that does a great job, uh, a scholar of Finnish origin, we'll say, who does a great job of um, pointing out the way that um, that you could construct an empire around a kind of mobile um, uh, um, uh, unit of people, um, much of whose uh, economic well-being was generated around capturing both humans and other animals um, because often slave raiders are people who will also take your cattle or your sheep or whatever and that analogy of the slave to the animal is common again cross-culturally 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you a final question that just occurred to me after we've had this discussion. I think it's a fascinating discussion. It's not easy to find information about uh, slavery and the antiquity of Byzantium in this format. And there's so much work to be done on this. I was wondering if you have any advice for, let's say, graduate students or young scholars who want to work on slavery in this period or, or later, like what kinds of questions should they be asking or where might they be looking uh, or what kinds of concepts would you recommend? I mean, just very briefly, like you, you surely you've thought of this. Absolutely. Well, I would say um, one thing is it will be clear from this discussion that I'm very much in favor of looking um, at cross-cultural models um, and that I think some of the problems that I have with the slave society model that we saw at the beginning is that it's really focused just on um, one cultural paradigm, um, the Greco-Roman paradigm, which it then kind of cross applies to the Atlantic world slaveries. Um, and instead, I think we need to think about slavery and slaveholding as a global phenomenon. And so I, I would encourage people if they begin on a project this to, to read widely so that their um, range of ideas about what it means to be a slave, what it means to be a slaveholder and so forth um, can become more, more widely informed. Um, but then if, if um, a person were to undertake a project, say a dissertation project, I'd say this is a massive um, question and not easily dealt with and that you'd wanna parcel it into um, some aspects that you could cover in a dissertation. And um, there, um, obviously, I've done a lot of work on captives and captive taking, but I think more could be done there. I think um, also uh, someone could look more strictly at the laws and the legal apparatus. There's plenty of documentary sources about slavery in the in late antiquity, the early Middle Ages, Byzantium. So uh, someone could focus on those sort of source pools. Um, and here I will call out um, another good book by Alice Rio on um, early medieval slavery uh, that's a, a really excellent use of simultaneously uh, a broad source pool, including lots of documentary sources, but also sophisticated theoretical apparatus to try to um, explain what happens to slavery in that period between 300 and 1,000 in the medieval West. Um, so, so I think that maybe um, what I've uh, described are maybe somewhat um, traditional approaches that is look at particular source pools and focus on those and then use um, information from outside other, other source pools in order to inform your discussion um, uh, because otherwise the problem just gets too big. But then insofar as there's anything innovative about what I've said, I think um, using the comparative angle in order to think about what it means to hold slaves or to be a slave or something. And above all, to think about what's going on in slavery studies in other fields where um, I would probably be in trouble with a lot of my colleagues even for talking about slaves instead of enslaved persons. Um, which has become the norm to basically try to reintroduce the slave as subject into mm -hmm. the discussion. And that happens far too little, I, uh, perhaps because um, of my generation or also because um, um, the source pool, I find it very difficult to do that. We have so little left of the slave's perspective mm -hmm. um, that it's difficult to portray them as the agents in this process, much as they were. And I struggle to do that all the time. Um, but that's uh, perhaps the most innovative approach would be if someone could try to write the slave's version of ancient Absolutely. or Byzantine slavery. Absolutely. Noel, this was fascinating. I think I'm going to listen to it over again and possibly teach a course on this because I, I think it can totally bear it and, and it's a very important topic. So thank you for sharing all of your work and insights with us. It's very nice to have talked with you and I'm happy to share my ideas. All right. Take care then. 
Take care.